I'd like to consider Psalm 50 this morning for our exhortation. So if you would, we'll go ahead and turn to Psalm 50. It's a, it's a wonderful psalm. It's attributed to Asaph. There are actually 12 psalms uh, attributed to his name. Psalm 50 and then 73 through 83. He was a Levite who was descended from Gershom, who was the eldest son of Levi. Of course, you'll remember the Gershom, Gershomites were the branch of the Levites that pitched to the west of the tabernacle, and they had the charge of the fabrics and the coverings, the curtains, and so forth. That was their responsibility. Now, in the time of David, King David, this family of the Levites was prominently represented by Asaph. And he was a prophet in addition to his duties as a Levite. As a matter of fact, in in Second Chronicles 29.30, if you want to write that down, he's termed a seer. Now his name means the gatherer. And interestingly, the root that his name is, comes from is used in verse 5 of Psalm 50. It's kind of a, a kind of a play on his name. He was chosen by King David to compile psalms for temple worship in the temple that Solomon dedicated. In 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, we read of Asaph's prominent role among the singers and the musicians in the temple worship. And those two chapters, if you recall, have to do with the bringing of the ark to Zion in David's time, you know, which was a really tremendous event. Let's look at a couple of verses in Psalm 15. I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 15. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of Yahweh. And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries, and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. And then down to verse 19. So the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were appointed to sound with cymbals of brass. David had appointed 288 singers, and that's in 1 Chronicles 25. We read about that. And they were divided into 24 classes. And these were these singers, these groups of singers, were placed under three different leaders. And they were Heman, who was a Kohathite. You know, they were the burden bearers associated with the temple worship or the tabernacle. Asaph, he was a Gershonite, and Ethan of the family of Merari. So these sons of Levi were responsible for this temple music and so forth. The theme of this Psalm 50 is very simple. Prepare to meet thy God, is we could say would be the theme of it. And we know that statement occurs in Amos 4 and verse 12. We must all realize, those who are called to be saints in the truth, that this is something we have to think about all the time, isn't it? Prepare to meet thy God. And it's a full-time job to prepare to meet our God. That's what this psalm is about. So it, you know, just by implication, preparation is an exhortation to action. You know, we talked about a little bit that about that in our Sunday school about how the truth 
living the truth is it requires action on our part. We can divide this psalm into five parts. Verses 1 to 6, the coming of Christ to judge his household. Verses 7 to 13, a special message for those who have been called to be saints. Verses 14 and 15, the disposition of the righteous saints. In other words, those these two verses describe those who will be accepted. Verses 16 to 22, we have outlined the attitude of unfaithful saints. And they display the spirit of Cain. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And then finally, in verse 23, the qualities of character which will justify those who are going to be numbered among the redeemed. The key to understanding this psalm revolves around two great offerings under the law. And that are they are the burnt offering and the peace offering. Let's look back at Exodus 24 and read two verses, or maybe three. And we'll start at verse 4. Now these same two offerings were used when Israel first came to Sinai. We know this is when they came out of Egypt and they were brought to Sinai. And I believe Psalm 50 looks at the gathering to the same place for judgment. I think this is implied. It's not really directly mentioned. But we know in verse 4 it says, And Moses wrote all the words of Yahweh and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Yahweh. And then look at verse 7. And he took of the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has said will we do and be obedient. And of course, we know they were not. Brethren, the fundamental principle upon which sacrifice is required and must be offered is stated in Exodus 23 and verse 15. Where we read, And none shall appear before me empty. And none shall appear before me empty. And this and this same thing is, is mentioned over and let's look at Deuteronomy chapter sixteen and verse sixteen. Three times a year shall all thy males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. So what this is telling us in simple language is that Yahweh requires something of us. And what he requires is what he has commanded us to do. And what he asked for. This psalm, back in Psalm 50, shows that some people make an effort to do this while others are too complacent or uh, indifferent or busy in the affairs of life to do what is required. The historical setting of the psalm seems to be when the ark was bought, brought to Jerusalem, the time that we we read of in First Chronicles 15 and 16. This would have been, I think, a high point in the life of Asaph. Asaph was a, like I say, he was a very prominent Levite and apparently was given uh, somewhat more a dose of the Spirit than his other Levitical brethren 
and that he was given this position of honor by David, and he was a seer and a prophet. And he was put to the prominent in a, in a very prominent role when the ark was brought to Jerusalem. And it seems very apt that, that in the life of Asaph, this seems the most appropriate setting for the song. And I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, from First from Chronicles 16 again. You don't have to turn there, but verses 4 and 5 say, And he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of Yahweh and to record and to thank and praise Yahweh, God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, Jeiel, Shemiramoth, and Jehiel, and Mattathiah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, and Jeiel with psalteries and with harps, but Asaph made a sound with cymbals. And then down in verse 7 it says, again we see this uh, excellent, you know, this uh, honor, role of honor that Asaph had, I guess we could say. Then on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank Yahweh into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. So Asaph was a very prominent had a very prominent role in this worship. And you know what a wonderful day this would have been in Israel. The ark was going to be finally brought to Jerusalem. It would have been very pleasant to be there. You know, if we imagine, and I think, anyway, anyway, that's a little bit of a background on the psalm. I think that this psalm, you know, may have been composed with this in mind. Of course, we know that Asaph was, you know, he was directed by the Spirit to put down what he did. And we'll see that very clearly. Let's look at verses back in Psalm 50. Uh, let me just read verse 1. The mighty, the mighty God, even Yahweh, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Now, if we, if we consider these words, they're really awe-inspiring. No superlative is too great it is majestic in its appeal for reverence to the deity, even Yahweh. And if we read the original names um, in the titles as they occur in the original, we read, El Elohim, Yahweh has spoken. Or the significance of the titles would be, The Mighty One, He who shall be manifested in the Mighty Ones, has spoken. And the only other way that those titles are so arranged in Joshua twenty two twenty two. So we know that this is you know this is a powerful message that Yahweh is proclaiming. He calls upon all the earth to witness his judgments. And if we look at the Psalms of Asaph, the twelve Psalms that he he wrote, that's very much a characteristic of his Psalms, is the a theme, a kind of a common theme that are the judgments of Yahweh. Now, prior to this, the saints will have been judged in Sinai, in the seclusion of Sinai. They will march out of Sinai, a glorious body. Then indeed will the earth be a witness to divine judgment. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. These verses are yet future. Consider the language. Out of Zion, 
the perfection of beauty. Elohim hath shined. You know, this is really the ultimate, brethren. This is what we're looking forward to. This is the redeemed arrayed in all their spirit glory. What a sight to behold it will be. The great prince and princess enthroned in power. This is the hope of Israel. Our God shall come. Now these are similar words to Deuteronomy 33.2 where we read, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Paran and came with ten thousands of saints. And from his right hand went a fiery law for them. This is prophetic of the judgment to come when the saints are gathered at Sinai as depicted in Psalm 50. Fire mentioned, we note in verse 3 that we see this fire mentioned that shall devour before him. Assemble for judgment. Of course, our God is a consuming fire. We know from Deuteronomy 4.24. It says that he will not keep silence as he has for so long. You know, these these words bring to mind in another place where we read that no flesh shall glory in his presence. Of course, when we think about being gathered to judgment, brothers and sisters, it is in flesh that we will be gathered before the great judge. In verse 4, we read a call to the heavens above. The angelic Elohim will assist in gathering the saints before their work on earth is complete. Because the world to come is not to be in subjection to them. They will not be judges, nor will their work continue once the saints have been granted moral nature. They will, I believe, assist Christ in the judgment of the household. This is represented in Scripture, isn't it? By implication, perhaps. But I think that we're all persuaded, and I think maybe many of us in here believe that we all have a guardian angel or our own particular angel. No doubt with whom we will be brought to confer with at Sinai. And uh, I have as a reference here Mark eight thirty-eight. I'll read for you. Whosoever therefore should be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You also could refer to Matthew 25, verse 31, and Luke 9 and 26. In Psalm 34 and verse 7, we read, The angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And to encamp means to pitch or to abide with. Delivereth, this word in in Psalm 34, 7, literally, literally means to pull off. And it's also translated to take away. This verse, I believe, is speaking of the back in Psalm 50 is speaking of the judgment in relation to the saints that he may judge his people in verse 4. Now Brother Thomas renders this verse I think probably more correctly in vindicating his people. Now the basic meaning of the word vindication is to justify or to support or maintain as true and correct. Now, 
the purpose of the judgment is a positive one. It's not strictly negative. Of course, we know that the the unfaithful saints and the pretenders are going to be weeded out in that day and dealt with. But the larger purpose of the judgment seat is to vindicate his people who have manifested Yahweh in the days of their mortality so that they will vindicate Yahweh's name throughout all the earth for eternity. In Deuteronomy 32, we read in verse 35, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. And here's the phrase I wanted to bring to your attention. For Yahweh shall judge his people and repent, or we may say avenge himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and none is shut up or left. Paul quotes in Hebrews 10 and verse 30, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. So I think we see the principle of the goodness and severity illustrated here. Now in verse 5, back in Psalm 50, we read, Gather my saints... Gather my saints together unto me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. I believe that this is instruction to the angels. This is their duty. And we all need to bear this in our mind. I think we need to expect, you know, those of us who are saints, we need to expect a visit from an angel at the appointed time. Today, tonight, maybe tomorrow, we're not sure. But I think we can all be persuaded that it will be soon from the signs that we see about us. You know, the great uh, drama in this verse, or the wake-up call, I guess we could say, is that we should expect this time to come. This is this is a reality that we should expect. You know, there's a hymn we sing that says, um, Go meet him when he cometh with joy, if yet with fear. So... Um, this is, a, this is something that we need to take the time to do now is to consider what are our thoughts going to be when that time does happen and occur. Is it going to be a, a, a thoughts of dread and foreboding or fear? I think it's going to be even... I mean, I think it's going to be fearful for even the most, uh, the most obedient. It's going to be a fearful time. It'll be an ordeal to have to go through the judgment... But I think this is a good exercise for us mentally. We all realize that in that day, mercy will be required. Um, you know, we think about the mercy seat in relation to the Ark of the Covenant. Now that was, you know, Asaph would have been familiar with this as he was part of that great celebration. You know, the mercy seat we associate with the atoning sacrifice. We know that blood was sprinkled upon it. For atonement. However, it implies that mercy inhabits it there, or mercy sits there. I mean, it's obvious, but um, even with sacrifice, mercy will be required. So even with this atoning sacrifice, mercy is a requirement. And this is a great feature of him that dwelleth between the cherubim. None of us can earn a passport into the kingdom. Only one man has met the requirements of that, and he and he will be our judge in that day 
Now, a key statement, I think, in this verse right here, in this psalm, is linked to the peace offering, as I said earlier. Now, let's read this verse um, literally, verse 5. Read as, My saints who have cut up meat for eating and a sacrifice. Now, the cutting of a covenant involves the sacrifice of a victim. We, in this room, are all in covenant through baptism. We have committed ourselves to his cause, and above all else, this is what we should do, is, is commit ourselves to this cause. And it's, and it's not always easy. Because the world that we're in can blind us to these obligations sometimes. And, but it is an obligation. We need to remember that. We have obligated ourselves, just as those uh, saints that were in uh, Sinai under Moses. They said, all that Yahweh had said, we will do and be obedient to it. Well, we've said that also. Of course, they didn't do that. We know they fell away. Uh, we all experience weakness. And we need to give this thought. Is there anything that can be more solemn than to have a covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel? I mean, if we really think about it, it's, there's nothing that's more awesome than... Uh, what we said we will do. In, in verse, back in Psalm 50 and verse 6, we read, And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. Selah means to pause and consider. That's what this, that's what this word means. The root means to weigh. We don't need to skip over this word when we read this here. We need to weigh and carefully consider the words that have gone before. Now we come to the new political heavens and earth. This language is very similar to Psalm 19.1, where we read, The heavens declare the glory of Elohim, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So here we have the immortalized and glorified saints, for Elohim is judge himself. For Elohim is judge himself. This is interesting because we have here a plural title, Elohim, used with a singular noun. In Psalm 45, verse 6, the title is used for Christ himself, that is Elohim. He and they are and will be the principal representatives of Yahweh. Elohim is judge himself. Okay, now let's back in, let's read verses 7 through 13. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? And we don't have time for going into all the details of these verses, but just consider the theme. And you know, kind of look down through these verses as we read them. And you know, the, the message here is that Yahweh is not dependent on the sacrifices of his people. 
It is the motive for sacrifice, not what Yahweh needs. Yahweh doesn't need any sacrifice that we provide. What pleases him is a spirit of willing obedience, not grudgingly. He requires that we love him and submit to the requirements of his words. He wants to see reflected in us what we sacrifice to him in verses 14 and 15. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. These show that Yahweh wants heartfelt thanksgiving. And, and really what that is, that's the peace offering. That's what the peace offering consists of. Rejoicing in the privilege of fellowship that we have. It's, it's, it's what it is, brethren. It's us considering what has been extended to us and all the goodness that Yahweh has extended to us and then being grateful and then obedience in return. That's, that's the peace offering. The rejoicing in the privilege of fellowship. You know, verse 7 to begin this section says, Hear, O my people. You know, and the word means to hear intelligently. You know, isn't this the constant message of the scripture? Hear, O, o my people. You know, I, Isaiah uses this message over a hundred times in his prophecy. In the letters to the seven ecclesias may come to mind. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has said to the ecclesias. So, really, if we don't hear brothers and sisters, really we're just not listening is what it amounts to. Or we're either that or we're just indifferent. Or our minds are occupied in other directions, which is really easy for us to do in, in our environment. So apart from our own foolishness, there's no reason we shouldn't hear. In verse 7, we also read there that Yahweh says that he will testify against thee. Now, this is not really so much merely, I think, a condemnation. I think it's a reminder to all of us. We all are going to have to face this reality at the judgment seat because all have sinned and come short of the glory of, of Yahweh. So all of us are going to be testified against at the judgment seat for our failings. You know, this is, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be fleshed before the great judge. It'll be a very humbling. We talked about humility this morning. I don't know that there can be a more humbling experience and that we will ever feel more minute in our lives as when we stand before the great judge in Sinai. And he will testify against us. So the, the blessing for us is we have this to consider. You know, we, can, we can consider this and weigh this in our lives and prepare ourselves for that time. We will be required to hear our record and acknowledge our failings. So we need to realize this. In verse 8, we read of these offerings, the, the, or the external practices of religion. You know, in their way, they're important because Yahweh commanded them, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and so forth. But as we've noted, Yahweh doesn't require these. His plan will continue regardless. Mechanical religion gives him no satisfaction, none at all. There's only one that, that made these offerings and, and did them in spirit and in truth to perfection. 
And it's, it's him that we have come to remember this morning. And, and the emblems on the table represent that. So in verses 14 and 15, we have recorded this disposition of those who will be accounted righteous at the, at the judgment seat. And really, in verse 14, the uh, offer should really be translated sacrifice. We can read that sacrifice unto God thanksgiving. And that's what the peace offering is. This is what he requires. And this can only be acceptable when our minds are attuned to the things of the truth. And this comes from internally. This is not you know, external religion. Pay thy vows unto the Most High. Now, the vows were also a component of the peace offering, fellowship. I want to read to you verse 14 from Rotherham. He says, Sacrifice to Elohim a thank offering and pay to the Most High thy vows. The word translated pay is the peace offering. The same word is the root word. It is a sacrifice for alliance or friendship. If the principles of verse 14 are seen in us, then in verse 15 we read, Call upon me in the day of trouble or distress. Why is that? I think this is important. Number one, because he is there. Number two, it is an act of faith for us to do so. We believe God and we trust in him. So here is the saint who wholeheartedly believes that the angel of Yahweh encampeth about them around him that fear him. So his his religion has a practical value. His religious life is real. It's not just theoretical. He, Yahweh tells him, I will deliver thee, and he believes him. He believes that Yahweh will. If these two verses are embodied fundamental principles, if they are part of our life, they will see us through to the judgment seat and into the kingdom. Now, in verse 16 to 22, we read a straightforward denunciation of the wicked. I'm not going to take the time to read them. Just cast your eyes down there from verses 16 to 22. The language is sharp and condemning. We should not find it difficult after all these words come from Yahweh. We cannot question his language or his wisdom. A denial or rejection of the terms of acceptable worship is the theme of these verses. They deal with the attitude of unfaithful saints in very strong words. And I think we can see the spirit of Cain is represented. Look at verse 16. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or to teach my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? So this class claims to worship, yet they do not are really not in a position to teach anybody. What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? You know, Yahweh asked this question. Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth. You know, here's another more direct reference to the peace offering. The offering was eaten by the offerer and the priest. You know, knowing their heart, Yahweh says, why are you doing this? Why are you taking my covenant in your mouth? You're false. You know, the Anatite, here 
before us this morning are the emblems and the bread and the wine. When we take his covenant in our mouth, which Lord willing we will do shortly in memory of our Lord. His covenant is on their lips, but their hearts are far away. They deceive themselves with the outward observances while busy in other directions in their own desires and objectives in life. In other words, they have neglected their obligation. They are indifferent to the requirements of the truth. What will be the result of this mindset? Look at verse 17. Seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee. So here's somebody who hates to be taught. You know, this is the opposite of one of those fruits of the Spirit we considered this morning, somebody who is teachable and meek. They hate instruction. They will not hear the word. So as if to say, no one can teach me, I know it all. So claiming to be pious, such a one is unmoved by the, the truth and the requirements it makes on his life. He has his own philosophy on religion. So practically... He treats the word with contempt. We see this throughout the history of the truth from Cain's day to ours. When Peter says there shall be false teachers among you, he does not say that there might be or there could be. He says there shall be. This is the history of the truth. And I think in in this psalm this morning we can see the warning to us. In verse 19 and 20, we see exactly the thing that Cain did. This epitomizes the Cain spirit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. This is what Cain and his seed have done. Why did he speak against his brother? Abel. Because his brother tried to get him to see the truth. Cain was a self-satisfied man and proud, which was a virtue to him. Let's look at verse 21. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. This sort of person here that we're talking about, then, this person that has this Cain spirit, measures his concept of God by what he is himself. I don't see it that way, he thinks. How could God? He can rise no higher than the thinking of his own flesh. So, I mean, we need to consider what Yahweh is saying. Understand, discern. One final appeal. He that forgets Eloah, the mighty one, will tear you to pieces, we read in verse 22. I think this is kind of a really kind of a reference back to verse 5. So he's saying, I'm going to treat you like the sacrifice victim and cut you to pieces. The conclusion we read in verse 23. Whosoever offereth, offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright, Will I show the salvation of God? Aren't these majestic words, brethren? 
Here is shown the disposition of those who will find acceptance. Their reverence to his word, their faithful walk before him for his honor and glory, not theirs. Note the, note the, uh, the comment in the verse, to him that ordereth. Now in my margin, it says, that disposeth his way. In my Bible, it says, that disposeth his way. I think, and what we mean by that is to regulate or to set in the right order. You know, is this, this is something we need to ask ourselves. Are we doing this? Are we preparing to meet our God? This is something, this is someone who is preparing or planning their life. They hearken attentively to the word and prepare or plan to that end. They order their affairs so as not to take away from ecclesial work, meeting, studies. They do not forsake the assembly. They are prompt and they make time for daily study. And in, in their faithful example, they encourage their brethren around them. And the reason they do this is because it's the most important thing in their life. This is the end result of those who are faithful in the days of weakness. And really this is the entire point of the psalm. To him who prepares or plans his life. While conveying sharp warnings to the rebellious, the psalm is revealing to us a way of life and harmony with these two great offerings. The burnt offering, or the complete dedication, and the peace offering. The complete oneness and harmony of eternal fellowship. This is what this psalm is all about. The one who embodies all these divine ideals to perfection is set before us in the emblems this morning upon the table. So as we are exhorted so to do, let us do our very best to follow in his steps as we remember him at this time. So with that, we'll have our memorial hymn, which is hymn 100.